Gracious Father, thank you for loving us and giving us this time to discuss your word. Lord, thank you for the sufficiency of scripture. It has everything we need for life and godliness. No matter who we are or where we are in life, it tells us what we need to know to be pleasing to you, to live a life that glorifies you. And so, Father, we pray that you would send the Spirit to make us to understand and to see, to appreciate, and to believe these things. And, Lord, stand firm against the schemes of the devil uh, so that you may be magnified all the more, Lord, through us as your servants and your children. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Okay. Well, uh, if you don't know me already, my name is Brent Osterberg. I am one of the pastors at Living Hope Bible Church in Mansfield, Texas. And so I love being a part of this conference every year. I've been doing this, I think, since 2014 with Keith and the crew here at Grace Bible Church. And so I'm glad to be back here again uh, talking about a subject that uh, I think is important because... It doesn't get the attention I think it ought to get in the biblical counseling community. And I'll explain why here in a minute. I'll start with an illustration to show you. Uh, When I was a kid, we had a pool in our backyard. And um, we were in that pool all the time. You grow up in the Houston area, and it's real hot. Just like you guys. If if you live in Texas, you know it gets really hot here in our state. And so uh, we were in that pool often. Uh, one particular summer, there was a whole week where it rained. It was like this torrential downpour for days. And so we were kept out of our pool. And that was miserable for us as kids. When we got done, um, when it got done raining, we were able to slip on our swim trunks and get right back to swimming. And it was a beautiful day. And we spent the afternoon swimming. All the while, um, there was this water moccasin that was behind a bush next to the diving board. We were jumping off the diving board, and, and the bush is right here next to the diving board, and we're having fun, we're laughing, we're cackling, and there's this big, gigantic snake that's curled up right there the whole time, and somebody at some point saw the snake right there and told my dad. I thought that was a, a fitting illustration of the subtlety of Satan's schemes. And how we go about our daily lives and we can't see our enemy. We can't see his demons, these powers of darkness that the scriptures talk about. Yet they're there. The threat is real and the threat is right there. And and we aren't thinking about it. We don't see it. And so I think that when we're talking about reformed churches or conservative churches, The issue of spiritual warfare is often a neglected topic for us to talk about. We don't want to um, make errors. I mean, there have been a lot of errors when it comes to uh, demonology and and when it comes to um, uh, combating the devil and things like that, exorcisms and such. There's been a lot of abuse there. And so we are fearful of that. And we respond by going to the other extreme and neglecting the issue of spiritual warfare, though the New Testament talks about it much And I think in the biblical counseling realm, I don't hear a lot talked about it either. And I would like to see us change that more because we talk about the heart a lot. If you've been to any number of biblical counseling conferences, we talk a lot about the heart and the need to preach the truth to our hearts, to um, repent of our idolatry. But are we talking about the devil and his schemes as much? I want to 
share with you a quotation from Erwin Lutzer concerning the schemes of the devil. And this will make sense as we go through my, my notes here because his tactics um, really have to do with keeping us from God. He says this, he's Erwin Lutzer speaking about Martin Luther and says this, Luther was right when he said that all sin is contempt of God. His point is that no one deliberately sins, but that he thinks wrongly of God. Satan's opening gambit is always intended to cause us to think wrongly about the Almighty. And so if you'll turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to spend some time walking through verses 1 through 5 to see the tactic of Satan. Yes, Erwin Lutzer, it's E-R-W-I-N, Lutzer, L-U-T-Z-E-R, Erwin Lutzer. It comes from the book, The Serpent of Paradise, speaking about Satan, helpful book on the subject. So we're going to see in Genesis 3, 1 through 5, this approach, this, this scheme of Satan to keep us from God. So let's look there together. Look with me, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now there is a scheme being used here. And that's actually a word that is used in the New Testament to describe Satan and in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 and the whole armor of God section of that letter. Paul talks about the schemes of the devil and how our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the rulers and authorities, speaking of the demons, the really the armies of Satan the army of darkness that he employs. John MacArthur says that he has a whole empire of darkness that he wields against us. So here we see, beginning in Genesis 3, verse 1, that Satan wants you to question God. That's our first point there. Satan wants you to question God. The serpent is shrewd. He is cunning. He is crafty. He uses a question. I think it's important if we want to understand the strategies of Satan, we need to understand that he he used this, this kind of tactic. Questions. He actually begins with a question, not a defiant statement or a bald-faced lie, but a question. Questions are suggestive. They're not bold and forceful. The threat of a question is not obvious. At this point, he doesn't really look like an enemy. He's just simply asking a question. You start to see the subtlety of our enemy. I think when we're talking about warfare, you think about actual physical warfare in our history, It's okay for us to question the wisdom of the warfare used in the American Revolution, for instance. 
long lines of soldiers marching up to one another, musket in hand, shoot, reload, out in an open field, without hiding, within sometimes 50 feet of one another. The kind of warfare that Satan uses is not like that. It's more like guerrilla warfare, isn't it? Guerrilla warfare is hiding in the bushes. There's ambushes, in fact. There's a lot of hit and run kind of warfare when it comes to guerrilla warfare. It's the difference between the bank robber and the cat burglar, right? The bank robber who, who runs in and, and yells at the bank teller, give me all the money. And the cat burglar sneaks in ever so quietly into a house, stealing what is there and what is valuable without anybody ever knowing. That's more Satan style when it comes to tempting us. In fact, if you think about his subtleties, I want you to turn with me to First Chronicles chapter 21. See an example of this in the text. First Chronicles 21, verse 1. You read this. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. It's the census that um, is uh, one that's done in pride on the part of David. But we get nothing from the text that would lead us to believe that David knows that Satan is at work in his own heart. He's doing what he wants to do and taking this census that is proud in nature. He doesn't know that Satan is inciting him to do this. He's simply following his desires. So we need to be on guard against our enemy. Our enemy is deceptive, he's devious, he's sly. We need to be on guard because not only is your heart untrustworthy, which we have established, if you were in track one at this conference, you you know we gave a whole, uh, there was a whole session given to the heart, the deceitfulness of the heart, but Satan, that's where he works. Not only do you have an untrustworthy heart, a deceitful heart, a wicked heart outside of Christ, and you still have the flesh, even if you're in Christ. But you need to know that that's where Satan works. He works at the heart level. He works in your desires. And so there's even more of a need for us to be on the alert. The serpent is shrewd. And the serpent also misrepresents God. He misrepresents God. I want you to look back with me at our text, but then look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, and then verse 17. And let's make a contrast between that and what the serpent says. God speaking here in verse 16 says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And those are the words of God. Now we go back to our verse, verse 1 of chapter 3. 
Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There is this contrast. He's asking a question, but he's misrepresenting God. I like what Matthew Henry says in his commentary on this. He says that Satan is insinuating that God has been overly restrictive. Notice how he says here, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, he, he said, you can actually enjoy all of the trees, except for this one. And so the, even the way that Satan is asking the question is one that misrepresents God. He's, he's painting God in the wrong light before Eve, as if he is overly restrictive. Satan is trying to get Eve to question God and thereby get his foot in the door of temptation. He's questioning God. He wants her to question God, right, with his question. And he does the same thing today. He wants us to question God today. He gets his foot in the door that way, right? He gets a foothold that way. He does the same thing today. Let's give a few examples here. Lust is adultery of the heart. Really? We might say. In our sin, in our fleshliness. You're saying that that's adultery of the heart? Come on. I haven't done the physical act. It can't be that bad. What about vengeance? Yeah, vengeance is sinful, but but he really deserves it. Can't I be his instrument of justice? Right? Yes, it's sinful, but you don't understand. He, he needed to be punished. He needed to feel the weight of his sin. Forgive? 70 times 7? But you don't know what she did. You don't know how badly she hurt me. And so there's always, with these questions that he is working in our hearts or or tempting us with, we often claim extenuating circumstances, don't we? God is displeased with complaining, but certainly I have to be allowed to vent sometimes. I mean... I've got to be able to let off a little steam. Really? I shouldn't be complaining? That's, a, that's sinful? But come on. I've got to let it out. I know it's wrong to act on it, but it must be okay if it just stays in my mind. We begin to question the goodness of his law. Hear me say that again. We begin to question the goodness of his law as if what he's requiring, what he's calling us to as Christians is he's, he's going too far. He's asking too much of us. He's, he's being demanding. How dare he? And so we begin to think he's, he's gone overboard. He, he's, he's exceeding what is reasonable and what he's calling us to as Christians. Those are the kinds of things we begin to think when we listen to the questions of Satan. He tempts us. So, 
think about this. We need to live in the Word of God. Your counselees need to immerse themselves in the Word of God. Because someone who is not regularly consuming God's Word is easy prey for Satan. We must know His Word if we will stand firm in it. We must look to our example of Christ and how He met Satan in the wilderness. He had been fasting for 40 days, and yet, without hesitating, He said each time that Satan tempted Him, it is written, it is written, it is written. When we are immersing ourselves in the Word of God, then when those questions suggest themselves to us, when he's asking these questions in our hearts, then we say, no, 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 no. I know what God's Word says. I know the goodness of it. I know that time and time and time again in the book of Psalms, the law is something that David praises God for. Not just the promises. Have you ever noticed that? Not just the promises does he praise God for, but the law he praises God for too. It is good. And God never commands us to do anything that is bad for us. We have to remember these things. And so steep your counselees in the word of God. Have that be um, meditation for them. Not just read this this week, but chew on it. Repeat it. Take it in in. Spin it around in your mind and ask questions of it. And how does it apply to your life? And, and then use it. I think one of the, the ways that we can um, best ingest the word of God is to actually use it in fighting Satan, in fighting temptation, right? You take it out whenever you're being tempted and you use it. It's the best way to memorize it and to keep it well-worn in your mind. So use it to memorize it and to keep it. Satan wants you to question God. Satan also wants you to doubt God. Let's look back at the text. He wants you to doubt God. Look with me at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As we've said, God had given all the trees in the garden for Adam and Eve to enjoy because he's a good God, right? All the trees except for, yes, the one to establish his authority, right? You must do what I say. I know what's best for you. I am the glorious one. It was only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he had forbidden them to eat from. Well, now, as Satan is tempting Eve, here's what he's doing. He wants Eve to focus on this one prohibition. He wants her to forget about all the other trees. Don't think about those trees. Just think about this one tree that you can't eat from. He wants her to believe that what God has provided is not good enough, that they're lacking. So Satan does this. He moves past all of God's immense generosity to focus on where God had drawn the line. There's an example of this in Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms because of the the descent of Asaph and how he comes out of his sinfulness in this psalm. 
we see him believing in his heart the lie that God is not giving him enough or that God's holding out on him. Here's the problem with Asaph. He says it in verse 2 of Psalm 73. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw that the people that were walking against the law of God were the ones that were living lives of ease. Circumstantially, they had it going on. Yet they're the ones who are forsaking the law of God with their very existence. And so he saw this and he became envious. And so look with me at verse 12. He said, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And then he looks to himself and he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He says, I've been living the way God wants me to live. I've been keeping my hands clean. I've been, I've been obeying him. And yet what do I have to show for it? It's been in vain. It's been empty. It's been useless for me to live that way. He says, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Not, not only am I not prosperous, but I'm actually suffering. I'm doing what's right and I'm suffering for it. And so he thinks that God is holding out on him. He's believing the lie. He's given into the temptation that Satan uses that leads us to doubt God, suggesting that he has not been good enough. He's not been generous enough that he is holding back. Satan wants to deceive you so that you look at what you don't have and see it as what you must have. All the while doubting that what you do have is so much more than what you should have. What I mean by saying that is that... He only wants you to look at the things that you don't possess and then look at it with this lust and this greed, this covetousness in your heart that says, I need to have it. I must have it. And forget all that God has given you so that you forget you shouldn't have it in the first place. In the first place, we should, we should all be in hell, right? Let's just be honest. We should all be in hell because of our sins against the great God of the universe. And so any goodness that we have is so much more than we should have. And we forget that whenever we look at what we don't have and we think I must have it. So often we sin because we've allowed Satan to tempt us toward doubting God's generosity. One author, this little book I'll, I'll recommend to you, um, by an author's name is Stephen Altrogi. It's kind of hard to say. But he wrote this little book called The Greener Grass Conspiracy. It's about uh, contentment. And he, he talks about how we play the if-only game. Like, if only I had fill-in-the-blank, then I would be happy. If only I had um, this person in my life that would do this for me. Or if only my spouse would act in this way. If only my employer would, would see that I really am valuable. If only I would be asked to, to do this at church. Then I could be satisfied. Then I would be happy. 
We play the if-only game all the time. But one of the things that I think we need to ask our counselees when we see that they're playing that game, or ask yourself, if you see that you're playing that game, if only, ask yourself and ask your counselees, what if you never get what's in that blank when you play the if-only game? What if you never get it? That will expose where the idolatry is. And you can then point them to God again, afresh, and say, listen, you don't need what's in the blank because you have already been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.3, right? Every spiritual blessing. Infinite spiritual resources in Christ. And in fact... We read this as well in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You and I in Christ are spiritually rich. And so we don't need whatever it is Satan is suggesting we do need because we're fulfilled. We're fulfilled. It's a great little book um, by John MacArthur called Our Sufficiency in Christ. Great book. He talks about um, how God has given us everything for life and godliness and the knowledge of him. And he uses this illustration of uh, a couple of brothers who lived in a home together and uh, they lived in a squalor inside this home. They, they would uh, rarely go out of the house. They hoarded things. Just The whole house is full of garbage. They lived in their own filth. And, and it was so full of junk and trash that actually the house burned down with them in it. They couldn't get out of the house. And it was found out that these two brothers were actually millionaires. Their parents had left them this huge inheritance, yet they lived impoverished lives in squalor. Let it not be said of us that we do the same thing spiritually. We've got all these wonderful blessings in Christ to enjoy and to serve God with, and yet we live impoverished spiritual existences. Let it not be said of us. We need to keep... Texts like 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and Ephesians 1, 3, close at hand, and so do your counselees. And in fact, we need to remember, like the woman of the city in Luke chapter 7, that we have been forgiven much. You remember that, that text of Scripture? Jesus says that she is loving much because she's been forgiven much, right? She loves much. She's there anointing his feet before the Pharisees who are sitting at the table. And he says... She's doing this because she's been forgiven much. All of us have been forgiven much. That's the point, right? But not everybody recognizes it. If you're a Christian, you have been forgiven much. And so what we need to do is we need to remember that we have been forgiven much and then respond in love. And so you remind yourself how much sin you really do have. And by the way, to help you with that, let me remind you, our sin is... Not just the things that we do that we shouldn't, but the things that we don't do that we should do. Not just our words that are sinful, 
and our actions that are sinful, but actually our desires too that are sinful and our thoughts that are sinful too. You start thinking about all of that and your sins become deeper and wider. And then you go back to the cross and you say, I have been forgiven much. and leads you to love much and to worship your king much for dying and forgiving you of all of those sins. He wants you to doubt God, but we need to remember that he's a liar and remind ourselves of the truth. Satan wants you to deny God as well, to deny God. Look with me particularly at verses 4 and 5 again back in our text. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What does he do here? He tells an outright lie. An outright lie. So he's, he's ramping things up, isn't he? He started with a question. Now he's moving into this contradiction. Contradicting God, essentially calling God a liar. When the opposite is true. Look with me at a couple of texts. Look at John 8.44. See what our Savior says of the devil. Speaking to these Jews who are opposing him in this context, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Could he be any clearer? Right? No truth in him. He lies and when he does so, he speaks out his own character. Why? Because he's he's not just one who speaks lies. He is a liar. And not just a liar, but he's the father of lies. The first liar. And so that's who he is and that's why we need to be on the alert and be so adamant that we not fall victim to his insinuations. Look with me at Revelation 12, verse 9. important to pay attention to how Satan is referred to throughout the Bible so that we can be ready. Revelation 12, verse 9. This is referring to the serpent. Satan himself and the great dragon was thrown down and the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The father of lies. The one whose very character is untruth. The deceiver of the whole world. Satan himself. So we should expect him to use a tactic like this. To be so 
contradictory, so in your face with the lies he's telling about God, when he straight up says, you will not surely die. But if we remember back in chapter 2, the Lord God said, you may surely eat of the tree, every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's a complete contradiction. Now contrast that with what we hear Jesus say of himself, right? In John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the truth. In a very real sense, you could call, you could call Satan the untruth, the father of lies. But Jesus is the truth. So here, we need to understand what Satan is doing. He's telling Eve that, sorry, not even, sorry, I don't know if that's me or that's just autocorrect or something. Satan tells Eve that God is not good and faithful. When he is good and faithful, he's saying that God doesn't have Eve's best interest in mind. That he's being stingy because there's more that he could give to her. Look back with me at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He knows what you would get if you ate of that tree. He doesn't want you to have it. He wants to keep it for himself. He's not looking out for you. You need to look out for yourself. That's the kind of lie he's telling at this point. There's more he could give to you, but he's not giving it. Now think about this practically as we think about our counselees. What lies does Satan lead people to believe about the character of God today? Think about this with me. If God really loved me, then my life wouldn't be so hard. I mean, that's fill in the blank. I mean, whatever hard we're talking about, right? You, you, you can have your own hard. Your, your counselee can have their own hard and just fill in the blank. They have their idea of what love looks like. And they say, if he loved me, this would be true. They're defining their own terms. They're writing their own standards and Satan's behind it. Now, listen, I want to be clear here. We can't blame Satan for our sins. We can't say Satan made me do it, but he certainly is tempting us. He hates us. He hates God. He wants to keep us from God. From loving him, enjoying him, reflecting him and serving him. And so these are the kinds of lies that he tells. So if God really loved me, then my life wouldn't be so hard. By the way, we've got to be careful with what we use um, in terms of verses that our people memorize. We've got to put them in context, right? So Romans 8.28 is a wonderful text. I love it. I use it all the time in my own life and the lives of people that I'm ministering to, right? But God causes all things for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But then you've got to go to verse 29, don't you? Right? You have to go to verse 29 because people could very easily say, okay, 
then I can say what good is. I can define what good means. God is going to cause good out of this trial right now, so I will get that promotion. I will get that raise. I will get that husband, wife. I will have this trial stop. I will be healed. And we start to define what good is and what love means. But when you go to verse 29, we're reminded that the good is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. We let God say what is love. God say what is good. That's why we, again, another reason why we have to immerse ourselves in Scripture. If God is good, then why is my family such a mess right now? Doesn't he want my, my family to be blessed? Doesn't he want there to be peace in my home? Where is his goodness right now? He wants us to deny God in these ways. And we, we kind of, we forget our own responsibility in it. And then we just simply point the finger to God, right? That, that, that's what's going on here. If God really loved me, if God is good, then these things would happen. And we forget that we have responsibility in it. And we forget that there are things that we should be doing. And even if your family is a mess right now, can you still be satisfied in your king? Even if... Your children aren't responding the way that they should. Your spouse isn't loving you the way that he or she ought to. You can still be satisfied in God. These are the things we need to remind ourselves of to combat the lies of the enemy. If God is faithful, then why won't he take this pain away? That's hard. I I say that, I, I don't want to put that down flippantly because I know that There's been much pain that many of you have experienced and many of your counselees have experienced. And so I don't put that down in a way that is is callous. But I want to remind us of Psalm 119, verse 75. It's a simple verse, but one that we can use whenever we're tempted in this way. Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. He has good purpose in it, all of it. He's never malicious. He's never trying to stick it to you and make you suffer in a way that is without good intent and good purpose. Always. We can remember this, and I'll talk about this more tomorrow, but just because you're suffering in a way that somebody else isn't, doesn't mean that God isn't using that precisely for you to become more like Jesus. They have their lives and what God is doing in their lives. He's doing something in your life too, and it's a different story, but the same end. Believe that. If God is so kind, then why don't I have any real friends? That would be another way that people think. And in in that, we, we demand answers sometimes. We have... 
a Job-like mentality that we need to repent of like he did in dust and ashes. We don't know all the behind the scenes things that God is doing. Like you've heard before, we, um, it's like we're looking at the back of the tapestry, yeah, and not the front of the tapestry. The secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But the things that are revealed are for us, right? And so let's let the secret things belong to him and trust that his heart is good always. What must we conclude about God in all of this? Remember Asaph? Let's go see what Asaph concluded. Because we, we, we saw that he thought that God was holding out on him. Psalm 73. Psalm 73. He had to repent. He actually gets to the point where um, he says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He goes, my heart got so dark when I was jealous and envious of the wicked that if I would have talked about it, <laughs> he says, he says uh, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It would have been bad if I would have talked about it out loud. That's how dark it was. But then he goes into the sanctuary of God, verse 17. Then I discerned their end, speaking of the wicked. I knew what they were walking toward. I knew what the, their, uh, their destruction would be. And he remembers, uh, verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And then he has to repent in verse 21. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's talking to God. It's like a beast toward you. And so then in that whole context, we get this, this wonderful couple of verses that, that you, you probably see written on uh, like posters and stuff and, and like little decor items at Hobby Lobby and verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Beautiful verses that I love, but they mean so much more in context, don't they? When you understand the depth that he went to in his sin and how he came up out of it, God showed him the truth about the wicked, led him to repentance, and now he's saying, wow, I thought, I thought that what I needed was prosperity and ease in my life, but what I needed all along was right there, because he says, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. So it says, it doesn't matter if I'm in heaven or on earth. God is the one that is my satisfaction. And then in verse 28, he says, but for me, it is good to be near God. Not to have more and more stuff. Not to have less and less trials. Not to have increasing ease. No, no, no. My good is his nearness. God's nearness is our good. And so we have to remember that as we're tempted to play the if-only game, if we're tempted to accuse God and deny him by saying, if, if he really were looking out for my good, then these things would be true. No, we remember that he is our good. Because Satan wants you to believe that God is one that is actually trying to stick it to you and make you suffer maliciously. But no, the opposite is true. And Satan wants you to covet God's position, actually. 
from questioning God to doubting God to denying God to coveting God, coveting his position, that is. We look back at verse 5. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the point being here that Satan is saying, instead of trusting God in his knowledge, you could have it yourself. You wouldn't need God. You would only need yourself. And this is um, the, almost the battle cry of our generation. Last, last year, if you were in um, track three, I talked about expressive individualism and have the, the belief that um, if you're going to be fulfilled and satisfied in this life, then the culture will tell you then whatever's on the inside must come out, right? It must be expressed on the outside. So whatever you feel, whatever strong feelings you have inside, let it out, live it out, no matter who gets in your way. That's the only way that you can truly be satisfied and fulfilled in this life. That's expressive individualism. All the while God's saying, no, 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 no. Remember, sin is on the inside. You need me to come in and sanctify you. And conform you to the image of my son. And then what comes out will be reflecting my glory. As you believe my word and you depend on the spirit and you choose to walk in my ways. So we need to remember that this is a lie of self-exaltation, a lie of self-sufficiency that Satan is using. And by the way, say, sorry, there we go. I'll give that back to you. By the way, Satan is using deceit by way of half-truths as well. What I mean by that is that while Satan is saying that you'll be like God knowing good and evil, what he doesn't say is that they will know good and evil by experience. By experience. Which means you will become evil. You'll know the difference because you actually become evil. He doesn't say that. So his deceit also works in that way through half-truths. By the way, he, another way in which he uses a half-truth is by um, being the accuser of the brethren. He's called the accuser of the brethren in the book of Revelation, right? Um, he accuses you of your sin. He accuses me of my sin. You're guilty. You're guilty. You, you, have for, you, you have rebelled against God, the God who made you. And you know what? He's right. But he doesn't tell you the other side of the truth. He gets the bad news right, but he doesn't get the good news right, which is Jesus saves. Jesus died for your forgiveness. Jesus died so you'd be adopted into the family of God forever. So that the wrath of God would be appeased when he died on the cross. And so that you would be set free from sin. He doesn't tell that truth. And you could say this about every sin, really. At the heart of sin is the desire to want to call the shots for yourself to be your own God, to be autonomous. That's at the heart of every sin. 
And so one of the, the simplest things we can do when we wake up in the morning to help with this is to, to remember there is a God and I'm not Him. It's, it's just very simple, but tell yourself there is one God. I am not that God. But He's made me. He's created me. He, he created me so that I would reflect His image in this world. He created me so that I would bow the knee to Him in every little crevice in my life because He's worthy and He's good. For you and your counselees, you say, and I say, in my sin, I don't need God for my marriage. I don't need God for my career. I don't need God to tell me who I am. That's a big one. I get to determine who I am. Who is God that He would do such a thing? And, and, and by the way, it's, it's rare that um, your counselees would say that out loud. Like, I don't need God. I mean, some, some of them might. But most of the time, we're, we're thinking that and acting on that. Again, Satan is working subtly. We're not, we're not standing up and defiantly slamming our fist on the table saying, I don't need God. But we functionally act that way in our sin. I don't need God to tell me how to spend my time and money He's overly restrictive, right? That's what we think in our sin. I don't need God to tell me how to use my phone. I don't need him to tell me what's right and what's wrong. Autonomy is what we want in our sinfulness. And so a big truth is found in John 15, verse 5. The combat, this tendency in us and this temptation of Satan, we need to remember this verse. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. So how can you claim autonomy? How can I claim autonomy? How can I claim to call the shots when Jesus says, you can't do anything apart from me. You must abide in me. And by the way, what does abiding look like? In the text, verse 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If his words are abiding in you, He's saying you can ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. What does he mean? How does that work? Well, whenever his words are abiding in you, then they shape and they form your heart and your desires so that what you ask God becomes what pleases God. And then what you're asking him, he delights to answer because it's in line with his will. And so he answers those prayers and gives you those requests. So part of having... um, a part of abiding in him is having his words abide in you, but also in verse 10, really in verses 9 and 10, we read this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Be like me. You obey my commands, you abide in my love, because I have a, I've been abiding in my Father's love by obeying his commandments. 
And then he says in verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I'm telling you things because I want you actually to have fullness of joy. How can we believe that he's stingy? How can we believe the lie that Satan is saying he's holding back? He's not looking out for your best interests. He's saying, I'm telling you this so that you have fullness of joy, that my joy will be in you. And so that those pleasures forevermore that David talks about in Psalm 16, that you would experience that in me, in my presence. As you have my words abide in you and you obey my commands. So that's all I've got. A couple of uh, resources you might want to write down um, on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Um, One is called The Whole Armor of God by Ian DeGuid. Ian, and then the last name is spelled D-U-G-U-I-D. Ian DeGuid, The Whole Armor of God. I already gave you that one, The the Serpent of Paradise um, on Satan by Erwin Lutzer. But then there's also the book um, Spiritual Warfare by Brian Borgman. So those are some helpful resources. Um, That one by Borgman, that's just called Spiritual Warfare, that might be my favorite one. Whenever we were preaching recently through um, the armor of God, uh, that was very, very helpful, just walking step by step through those different uh, pieces of armor. And so I recommend that one highly. But uh, if you have any questions, I'd love to, to answer them. You actually have like four more minutes. You guys remember that tomorrow when I go over, okay? So I'm going to bank that for tomorrow when we, we come back in here. Let me pray for us and then we'll end off. Father God, thank you for this time. May this uh, be a, a session that we remember and that it helps us to combat Satan and his demons and the ways in which he lies to us in our hearts, trying to lead us away from you, Lord God, the one that we need, the one that we need to abide in. Lord, may we not allow it. May we say it is written, it is written, it is written like our Savior before us, looking to him, the one that we need always, the one who has saved us. Whenever the lies of Satan say that you have rebelled against God, you deserve his punishment, we'll say yes, but he has taken that punishment for me. May we believe in the gospel and preach it to ourselves every day to combat not only um, our hearts and our flesh, but also the lies of your enemy and ours too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.